Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1903, an immigrant came to America with $2.51. Almost no one knew who he was, but they would. He was going to get very, very rich, but his money and his fame came in kind of unusual ways. He didn't become a movie star or an athlete or a captain of industry. He became a con man, maybe the most famous one who had ever lived. He ran an investment business, sort of. You'd invest, and then very quickly, you'd get high returns. It was a great con. And people practically threw their money at this guy, Charles Ponzi. Ponzi, not surprisingly, spent money like it was going out of style. He bought a mansion. He bought part of a pasta company. He brought his mother over from Italy on a fancy cruise ship. But it was only a matter of time before everything came crashing down. And Ponzi's scheme, which is so famous, it's now part of our vernacular, collapsed. Maria Konnikova has written about con artists and their amazing power to suck us in. She's the author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. She's also a contributing writer to The New Yorker. Maria, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So how would you define a con? Sort of in the most simple way, what are the elements of a con as it gets put together? Well, the definition actually comes from the word confidence, as in to give someone your confidence. Mm. It comes from a phrase that not the first known con artist, but the first time that we used the word con artist happened, which was this guy um, in the 1800s in New York, William Thompson, who would approach people on the street and say, have you the confidence in me to lend me your watch until tomorrow? And he ended up with a whole lot of watches before he was caught because it was actually quite an ingenious way to get people to put their trust in him because it really, um, you know, it says so much about the kind of person you are. Um, Do you trust this person? Do you think they'll give the watch back? And so that's where the root of con or confidence man um, or confidence game comes from. Have you the confidence in me? So Mm. it's all about giving someone your confidence. And that is the crucial element. So con artists don't actually take anything from you. You give it to them. So you were talking about Charles Ponzi. The brilliance of his scheme is that he didn't take money from anyone. He didn't steal any money. Mm -hmm. People wanted to give it to him. The same thing, you know, when we have our modern day Charles Ponzi, Bernie Madoff. I mean, people just couldn't wait to give him their money. There were wait lists. They tried for years to get into the Madoff Fund. And that's why I think that defines all cons, not just Ponzi schemes, that you really, you give them your confidence fully. Um, And it makes con artists really tough to catch and really tough to prosecute because oftentimes they didn't break the law. Um, So what makes us as humans, I guess, so vulnerable to these con people, to these confidence people, um, 
since, you know, if we don't change over the course of 100 years, there must be something kind of hardwired, sort of part of our psychology that we're just, we're just vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's actually a three-part answer. Part one is that we're really, really bad at spotting lies. So we actually haven't evolved to spot deception, and instead we've evolved to trust. And it's more advantageous from an evolutionary standpoint to trust other people. So there's a a lot of data that shows us societies with higher levels of trust do better socially, economically. Um, And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? Who's, Who's the person who's actually going to survive in the wilderness? Not the lone wolf, but the person who has others supporting him. Right, right. And so you need to build those human connections. You need to learn to trust other people. So that part makes sense. And it also makes sense that we don't spot deception well because most deceptions are really kind of social lubricants. So you don't want to know that someone doesn't really like you. You don't want to know (laughs) that they're not happy to see you. You know, when someone says, oh, you know, I love your haircut, you don't want to know that they actually think that your haircut looks ludicrous. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so so really those kinds of white lies make society function. And so we we don't have that radar. So I think that's the first part of it, that we can't really tell when people are lying to us, even though we think we're really, really good at it. I think the second part of it is that we are very optimistic as a species. We're hopeful. You know, that gets us going in the morning, that we think that no matter what, tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday was. Otherwise, what's the point? And you see on scale after scale that people actually have this kind of optimism bias about themselves and about the world. They don't see reality as reality. They see it with kind of this rose-colored glow. There's mm-hmm. there's really a truth to that cliche that we see the world through rose-colored glasses. And the only exception to that is people who are clinically depressed. They actually respond accurately on all self-assessments and assessments of the world, and they're clinically depressed. So once again, it shows that having that optimism bias is normally right. very advantageous. Right. It helps protect our psychology. We don't want to know the truth about ourselves, which I think leads us nicely to the final point, which is that if I tell you, you know, listen, if it seems too good to be true, it is. You'll say, yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. However, when it comes to yourself, you never really think good things are too good. You think, oh, I deserve this. Right. I, don't I know how to pick the best investment funds? Look at these returns. You don't say, hmm, these returns are too good to be true. You're saying, look at how much money I made last year. Right. And look how smart. It's a measure, instead of a measure of the con person's intelligence, it's a measure of your intelligence that... Exactly. And con artists know that. They, you know, flattery gets you everywhere. And (laughs) con con artists know this. I mean, they will flatter the ear off of anyone. You will feel so smart, so refined, so sophisticated. You'll feel like the best version of of yourself. That's the version they're selling you. Mm. Um, And you'll feel like a truly wonderful human being. And I think that's part of the success. They make you feel good. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Maria Konnikova, author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. She's also a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Do you think that con artists are a special group of people, or they're just kind of regular people who somewhere along the line like made a bad choice or kind of started to follow a, a slightly nefarious path and started down this you know what I mean? Or are they like Mm -hmm. very particularly suited to to do this thing? 
So I think the answer is both. So I think that a con artist is both born and made. It's a combination, as with so many things, of predisposition and opportunity. So would any person become a con artist um, if given the chance? Probably not. But if you have certain predisposing qualities and you're put in that environment, then a person who would have you know, been a perfectly you know, decent contributing member of society in an honest way um, in another set of circumstances could become a con artist. Mm. So I write about something called the dark triad of traits, um, which is psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. And psychopathy is actually incredibly rare. So it's absolutely not true that all con artists are psychopaths. There's a very small overlap there. Mm. But narcissism and Machiavellianism are actually much more common. So the narcissism is not just a kind of grandiose sense of self, but a sense of entitlement. So um, since we've spoken about them in the past, let me just refer back to someone like Ponzi or Madoff. You don't think that you're doing anything bad because you think that you are more entitled to that money. You know, you're smarter, you're somehow better, and so you're just taking what's rightfully yours, and who are you really hurting? You, you know, don't even think are- of it as criminal behavior. Exactly, exactly. So it's this very self-justifying way of looking at the world. And Machiavellianism, from Machiavelli's Prince, is the ability to persuade people to do what you want them to do without their realizing it. So someone like Madoff wanted you to give them your money, but instead of asking for it, what does he do? He says, no, I'm sorry, I'm not taking any new investments. He makes you beg. So right, he, right. he actually kind of uses this very sly psychological approach to get people to do exactly what he wants, but they think it's their idea. Right. Like, oh, he, you know, he, he didn't ask me. I wanted to give it to him. And people do this over and over. Hmm. So I wonder, you know, since we're really not that good sort of psychologically at, um, at distrust, we're very good at trust. I wonder when it comes to these kind of newish platforms like Twitter and Facebook, where lots and lots of people who are, quote unquote, our friends now have real sort of proximity to us or feel like they have proximity to us. um, Do you think things have gotten a lot worse because in some ways people can bridge vast distances to con you? Absolutely. Um, I think that social media is a con artist's best friend. Um, and they are able to take advantage of it so much better than we are able to protect ourselves. We are just putting so much information about ourselves online that it's now a cakewalk. So things that the first step of any con is called the put up and it's profiling the victim, figuring out, you know, what are the victim's likes and dislikes? What makes her tick? What motivates her? What is she afraid of? All of these things that just create a psychological profile that you can then work with. This used to take so long. Now all you have to do is be friends with them on Facebook, follow them on Twitter, follow them on Instagram, look at their registries, and you have this big picture. You don't even have to be technologically savvy, but you know so much about their life. Um, It's actually quite scary. And then you can use all of this information against them. And I don't mean use it against them in the sense of blackmail. I mean, use it against them like, oh, you know, how about them Red Sox? Oh, you're also a fan. Who knew we have so much in common? And of course, they had done 
all of this research right. and they know exactly what bar to look for you. Right. They know that you love the Red Sox. They know they even probably know your favorite brand of shoes and they've worn the same shoes because we like people who are similar to us. <laughs> all of these sorts of things um, that will make trust so much more easy to accomplish and so much quicker to accomplish. Is there any evidence that there has been in the last few years a big tick up in these kinds of scams and and cons? You know, there's been evidence in an uptick in catfishing, which is false identity. um, And that has definitely become easier. There are a lot of sweetheart scams up there. And a sweetheart scam is when you think you're in a romantic relationship with someone, um, but it's really a con. So things like that have definitely been on the upswing. It's really a con. Like, do you know the person or are you just kind of like pen pals with the person? Either way. So one of the people I wrote about um, met someone on OkCupid and ended up living with him. And he was an imposter. He was not who he said he was. This was a really... Ter- you know, it's a terrible situation, but unfortunately, a common one. So and then they just steal. Ways. They like this. Yeah, they they're, steal they're from in the it for something else. Okay. Yeah, they're they're in there for something else. Um, money, quite often, or um, you know, power. There are lots of different motivations. Mm. But um, but yes, they. It's not about love at all. Mm. It's only about love for one of the two mm. people. And it's a that's a it's a really devastating one, but it's become much easier with with social media and with online dating. But let me caveat all of this by saying that there are no good numbers on the number of cons that are perpetrated every year because most of them are not reported, either because people don't realize they've been conned. So a lot of people still to the end say, no, no, it wasn't a con. You know, this was legitimate. I just got unlucky or. Um, they're too embarrassed, and so they don't report it. So we don't have the real numbers. We just have an approximation. But yes, it does seem like social media has opened up the world to a lot of different cons, and the internet in general. I mean, if you think about the Russian hacking, that started off with um, a very elementary technique of con artists, the fake email, please reset your password. And this worked at the highest levels of government. And that's how they were able to gain access to um, the emails of so many people in the Democratic Party. So uh, now that you know everything that you know, are um, are there pieces of advice that you give to people about like how to protect yourself, especially if this is a world in which Cons that always existed are there, but maybe they've multiplied. Maybe they're facilitated by all these kind of new ways we have of reaching out to people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most practical piece of advice is don't accept friend requests from anyone you don't actually know, no matter how many friends in common you have, and be really protective of your personal information. And people, you know, people say, oh, you're old, you know, that that's why you're giving this advice. I want all of my friends to know all this personal stuff about me. I'm saying, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> this is, it, it actually, sure, your friends know it, but then a lot of other people do too. Right. Um, you know, really be careful with your privacy settings hmm. and with who you accept into your friend groups. And um, that is the single most practical piece of information I can offer. Um, One that's a little bit more difficult to implement, but I think is very helpful, is to try to look at yourself in the third person. So how would you react to this situation if it weren't happening to you, if it were happening to, say, 
the guy who sits over in the next cubicle from you, what advice would you give him? So, for instance, you know, he has this great new investment opportunity in land in Florida um, that's been underdeveloped, and he's really excited about this because he's going to have great returns, and he shares this over lunch. Do you say, oh, that sounds really great, I'm really excited for you, or do you say, wait a minute, um, I think you need to do more Hmm. recon on this person, this aspect, this, have you asked this? Have you seen that? And if it's the latter and it's happening to you, then you should be careful as well. Because it's much easier to be objective about someone else, especially someone who's not very close to you, than it is to be objective about yourself. Hmm. That said, this advice is much easier to give than to actually take. Because when it starts happening to you, you don't want to be objective. When good things happen, we don't ask questions. We only ask questions when bad things are happening. Have you changed your behavior at all? Or do you feel like you're less trusting of people? I was for sure at the um, right after I kind of emerged from writing the book because I had spent over three years with just these really terrible individuals. <laughs> and so I was really dispirited. I said, you know, people suck. Humanity sucks. <laughs> um, you know, Hobbes was right. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. And so, yeah, for a while there, I just didn't want to meet anyone new. And then I realized that that's a very impoverished existence. I mean, you really close yourself off emotionally to new experiences, to new relationships, and it's not worth it because most people are not con artists. What I realized was that the same thing that makes us so vulnerable to con artists is also what makes us human. It's the essence of our humanity. And I wouldn't give that up. And so, sure, maybe being trusting and open will make me a potential mark, but it's also going to have me leading a much richer life for most of my life. And so I would rather take that trade off. And that's where I've ended up. Maria Konnikova is the author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. She's also a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Maria, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And on our website, we've got Konnikova's personal favorite when it comes to cons, a man who impersonated people in almost every profession you can imagine, including some that are going to horrify you. So he decided that he wanted to be a surgeon because it was the most kind of prestigious thing he could think of. And so he stole the credentials of an actual surgeon. This was during the Korean War, and there was a shortage of surgeons. You can hear that part of the interview at innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. It's probably hard to imagine for a loyal podcast listener like yourself, but only about 20% of Americans have actually listened to a podcast in the last month. We're trying to increase that number along with a lot of other podcasts out there. And this is a little bit of an experiment, but we're asking you, someone who gets podcasts and who loves their magic, to tell a friend about a podcast you love. So it could be this podcast, but it could be another podcast. We just want you to share the joy of a really good podcast. And then tweet at us, we're at iHubRadio, to tell us what you recommended and use the hashtag tripod, 
T-R-Y-P-O-D. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for listening. Celine Malkoch lives in Ohio, but she hasn't always. She grew up, she went to college in Turkey. And she started to notice a difference between the two that is not cosmetic and probably not going to be on your list of 100 things that are different between Turkey and Ohio. But the implication of that difference for our lives is profound. What she noticed was time. In the two places, people treated it completely differently. In Turkey, uh, we have very little structure to our time. Even meeting times are pretty malleable which is a huge contrast to what we do things in, in the U.S. where, especially recently, we're scheduling every minute of our day, especially our leisure, increasingly so. So after one visit to Turkey, I was doing the recommended behavior of uh, scheduling all my leisure activities with my long-lost, not-seen friends and family members. And I found myself saying stuff like, I have to go meet my best friend now. And then I stopped. I'm like, why am I making this sound like a chore? This is something I looked forward to. Malkoch says that feeling stuck with her. And when she came back to the U.S., back to her job as a marketing professor at Ohio State University, she created an experiment to look at what happens when we start to schedule our free time. For the experiment, she wanted to pull in large numbers of students. And to do that, food always helps. In this study, we set up a coffee shop uh, on campus where we gave uh, participants free coffee and cookies. The trick was that they had to have a ticket. One of the tickets asked them to specify a particular time that they were going to show in the next two, three hours. And we said, you know, supply is, is a problem. We want to make sure that we always have things for people coming in. Why don't you tell us when you want to show up? And they wrote the time that they were going to come on the ticket, and we left the ticket with them. Okay. For the other group, we said, you know, we are giving free cookies and coffee. We would be happy if you join us. Here is a ticket. You can show up anytime between the, the next two, three-hour period. Mm-hmm. And then... Those who wanted to uh, get these uh, free goodies came to our coffee shop. We gave them their coffee and their cookie. And while they were enjoying it, we simply asked them a single question. How much are you enjoying this break from your studies? (laughs) That was as simple as that. And the results were pretty strong. By far and large, those who actually scheduled it indicated that they are not enjoying it as much as those who came at like a window of time, but not a predetermined specific time. Interesting. Because I, I wonder if it felt like that was just one more thing they had to cross off their list. They had said they'd come by at three and like they had to come by at three. I think that totally factors into it. Uh, that inflexibility at the beginning time is a huge driving factor. Mm-hmm. It's about how specific you're in your s- scheduling. For instance, this rough scheduling phenomena where I schedule with a window but not with a specific beginning and end time, is actually as good as experiencing this on the fly. If I simply interrupted people and gave them a ticket and say, do you want to come right now to have coffee? They would enjoy it as much as they did in this like window of, of time. Okay, so tell me what your suggestion is for people like me who are um, surgically attached to their day planners. I actually, I have things scheduled two ways, um, by hand. Um, and also, a lot of things are scheduled, like we have a work uh, schedule, like a digital work schedule. So if you are dependent on that schedule to know where you should be, when, and it's true of the weekends and it's true of the weekdays, the whole thing to know, like, am I free that weekend day? Am I free Wednesday at 3? All that. Um what do you do if you want things to be enjoyable in your life, but you're worried, like, 
if I'm not careful about my schedule, I'm going to schedule two things for the same time and then, you know, things will blow up. Well, I mean, our main recommendation is to schedule with some flexibility. Now, the problem is if you're talking about your digital calendar, there is almost no way of doing this. In your old school day planner, you can actually block out a you know, few hours of a time and say that I'm going to have coffee somewhere around this time right. you know, between two meetings. And we find that such a behavior is actually not detrimental at all. The problem is with our digital calendars, it forces us to put in a beginning and an end time, which then, of course, creates this uh, inflexible beginning times, which then uh, leads to the detrimental behavior that we find. So I would either suggest you don't schedule as many things and let go some of the things, Mm -hmm. knowing that the ones that you schedule or not schedule and enjoy will be better for you, or try to schedule them more flexibly. And what do you think of the whole... When you see, obviously, the power of digital calendars and people sharing them with each other, it, it can be um, family members, it can be coworkers, whatever. Um, what do you think as you see the rise of increasingly people creating a, a schedule that's online? I really feel concerned because, I mean, I engage in that behavior myself to some extent. You know, if you're a professional, your time is limited. Right. You have to schedule your work and your work sometimes spills over to your evenings and weekends. And you're also busy on your weekends. And I look at myself behaving that way. And I'm really concerned about myself. So I change my behavior after my findings. And I'm trying to leave my weekends open. I talk to people saying that let's do something this weekend, but let's touch base Saturday morning or Friday afternoon. And let's try to make it a little bit more spontaneous. Hmm. And I think this is related to what other people talk about um, in terms of overscheduling the children between the soccer practices and the play dates. They have got practically no time to do anything on their own will or just out of spontaneity. Which is a funny thing because the play dates presumably are unstructured time, but I guess we're giving structure to the unstructured time. I mean, I know that I drag my son out of the house saying that we are running late. You have a play date. <laughs> and the minute I start to do that, he's not relaxed anymore. He's right. just stressed to go to that play date. <laughs> Celine Malkoch is a professor of marketing at Ohio State University. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. And while we're talking about the mismanagement of our time, daylight saving starts in just a few days, which means time zones are going to get scrambled in your head, perhaps more than they're already scrambled. America changes clocks on March 12th. Europe does it on March 26th, except in places where they don't switch, like Hawaii and Arizona. Time zones have been confusing people ever since they were invented, which though it's kind of an unsexy topic, has turned them into a gold mine for comedians. Like the comedian Hugh Fink, who hails from Indiana, a state that has only adhered to daylight savings time since 2006. And also, different parts of the state are in different time zones. Now, my parents still live in Indiana, and uh, I'm in New York now. Different time zones. This is the eastern time zone, Indiana's central time zone. My father does not get time zones. I talk to him once a week. We have the same conversation over the phone every week. Well, it's, it's 8 o'clock here. What is it, 6 o'clock there, huh? Huh? It's 1.30 here, so what is it, 9.30 there, huh? 
Well, let's see, it's Monday here, so what is it, Wednesday there, huh? It's summer here, what is it, winter there, huh? It's the Industrial Revolution here, what is it, the Paleolithic era there, huh? So here's the thing. There aren't actually any international laws about time zones. A country, a state, they can do whatever they want. That's how we get situations like North Korea, which set its clocks back a half hour a couple of years back, effectively creating a new, very unusual time zone. When it comes to time, we may need a little innovation. Time is the same every place in the world. It's just the sun is in a different position every place in the world. Enter Professor Steve Hankey of Johns Hopkins, who thinks he's got a very simple solution to our mess. Introduce a universal time zone. Hankey thinks we should all switch to Coordinated Universal Time, UTC. That's the solar time at zero degrees longitude. It also happens to be the time zone that Reykjavik, Iceland chose. That means in the Steve Hankey system, when it's noon or 5 p.m. somewhere, it's going to be noon or 5 p.m. everywhere. Though for some people, 5 p.m. will mean time to go to sleep. For some people, it'll mean time to wake up, time to go to the office, whatever. Opening hours would be 2 p.m. and and stores would close at 10 p.m. It's fairly simple. Everyone would be reading the same time on their watch dialed, but you would have different work zone times. The, The sun is still going to dictate normal activity. He thinks a universal time zone will make everything easier. Whether you're in international business and you're trying to work out a deal between Beijing and Boulder, or you're just someone in Gainesville trying to call a friend in Sacramento. In some ways, this is about as simple a system as you can imagine. But even Hanky admits that if you want to call someone far away, you would still have to think, are they going to be awake or asleep at 5 p.m.? And of course, there's the problem of adapting to universal time. Getting on board with waking up at, let's say, 2 p.m. every day might be a tough mental shift. It'll be a little bit like switching to the metric system, you know, and and it won't be that big a deal. Well, you know, switching to the metric system sort of was a big deal. So much so that, at least in America, lots of us haven't really done it yet. But Henke is also quick to point out that universal time is already embraced by some industries, like airlines. Universal time, or what we used to call Greenwich Mean Time, is used by all airline pilots and all airports in the world. And if we didn't have that, we would have a a lot of confusion and possibly uh, tragic collisions. They're reading exactly the same thing off their watches. And in fact, all these computers really are reading a universal time. They're uh, converting it into local time zones, but they're, they're all really geared to universal times. And that's why Hanky thinks that a universal time zone is inevitable, whether our governing bodies are into it or not. I think spontaneously universal time will be adopted and is being adopted almost as we speak. But you might not want to hold your breath, for now at least. Double check the time before you place that call to Pyongyang. By the way, Steve Henke also has an idea for a universal calendar, which would mean that every month would follow the same pattern. So if the first of this month was a Monday, the first of every month would be a Monday. We've got an explanation of how it works at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody really know?
From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. And from Destination Medical Center, with Mayo Clinic at its heart, DMC is a strategic economic initiative committed to making Rochester, Minnesota the world center for life science and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. Professor Mark Edwards has been living a strange reality for about the last 15 years. He knows what will happen. He just has no idea when. Edwards is an environmental and water resources engineer at Virginia Tech, and he's an expert on lead. What he knows is that in many places in America, people are drinking lead-contaminated water. What he doesn't know is whether that water is in my neighborhood or in your neighborhood. He certainly had no idea it was in Flint, Michigan, until late one night. When we got the results, I was sitting in my chair in my living room about midnight, and I would have fallen out of the chair if it was possible. That it was the worst linen water we'd seen in probably 25 years, and we'd seen a lot. This isn't really a story about Flint, though we'll talk about it some. It's more about what lies beneath the surface when it comes to our drinking water and why the truth often doesn't bubble up. When Mark Edwards started to understand the dimensions of what was going on in Flint before almost anyone else in the public did, it was literally because a mom with twins FedExed him her water. Almost three times hazardous waste levels of lead were in her house, so much so that a single gulp of that water could cause the lead poisoning of her child. The sad thing is, as I said, Edwards knew this was coming. Because of a prior lead and water crisis in Washington, D.C., and the fact that the agencies involved and caused that crisis did not learn from their mistakes, we knew another D.C., was going to occur. And when we got the call from Miss Leanne Walters explaining the situation in Flint, we knew, unfortunately, that this was it. This is what we knew was going to happen, another lead and water crisis. What Edwards has learned from years spent measuring lead levels and tangling with government agencies is that this problem is bigger than anyone realizes and that lots of people don't really want to talk about it, as he discovered in D.C., So it took uh, six years uh, for me volunteering to show that thousands of children had their blood lead elevated. So the only thing that was learned from D.C., which, by the way, was 30 times worse than the harm done in Flint, Michigan, in terms of the population exposed to lead, was that uh, unless someone from outside looks in on this and and steps in, uh, these agencies can get away with anything, and they will. Edwards hopes that now is a moment when we can start to fix a water system that's dangerously under-resourced. President Trump has talked a lot about infrastructure rebuilding. Not to put too fine a point on it, Edwards says if you don't have water infrastructure done right, you've got nothing. I feel strongly this is an area of potential bipartisan agreement, this issue of infrastructure inequality and upgrading these pipes. And so I think it's been a real canary in a coal mine. It's been a wake-up call that you can only neglect your water infrastructure so long before civilization as we know it ends. And 
We have a precedent with the Roman Empire when they did not maintain their aqueducts. Uh, Ninety-five percent of the population of Rome had to leave. Uh, this is what happens when you don't have a mechanism bringing clean water into a city and sewage out. Civilization, as you know, it ends, and you can't maintain the same population that you once did. So how prevalent are lead pipes across the country? I mean, what, in your view, is the dimension of the problem that we're looking at? Well, lead in water is, is very common, and we think that government-supplied or responsible lead is in about 13 million U.S. homes. These are the lead pipes that connect a house to the water main. And virtually every home in the United States has some lead in their plumbing. We realized we, it wasn't until January 2014 that we actually passed a law that required that manufacturers stop adding lead to brass that's mm. used in kitchen faucets and intricate plumbing devices. So any home built up until till January 2014 has some lead in it, Whoa. although the worst homes are those built before... 1986, which could have lead pipes or lead solder. And is any amount of lead is, is not a good thing, I'm assuming? Well, it's official U.S. government policy that there's no safe level of lead exposure. But practically, I get concerned in terms of the impact on lead in blood when you get above about five parts per billion lead in water. Uh, of course, the World Health Organization standard is 10 and the EPA says 15. But these are kind of out-of-date regulations, and the risk is, is relatively low, you know, if you're at five or below, but you start getting into the above 20 parts per billion or 100, or in the case of Miss Walters in Flint, Michigan, 13,000 oh parts gosh. per billion, uh, you start to realize the nature of this threat. It's literally to the point that it, occasionally in some of these cities, you'll get a glass of water, and if you consume it, it's the equivalent of eating like five lead paint chips. Have you ever um, just, or has anybody ever just done a bunch of water samples, like sampled water in L.A., sampled water in Miami, sampled water in Indianapolis, just to check it out? Well, the system is based on trust. I mean, we have this system of environmental policemen at the EPA and at your water utility who are supposed to be following federal law and doing that for you. We have been doing some checking, as have some reporters around the country. And in general, most of the cities they've looked at and turned rocks over at, they've, they've found that, that laws and protocols were, in fact, being broken. Hmm. In some cities like Pittsburgh, they admitted that they had a problem. We found lead in schools wherever we looked. And, of course, even at cities that are doing their fair share, there's still homes that, that have lead and water problems. So even if your city is following the letter of the law, doing everything that's in, in its power, uh, there can still be many, many hundreds, if not you know, thousands of homes in some of these cities that have lead above the World Health Organization approved levels. Right, right. And most people don't know that they have some responsibility to protect themselves from lead. And the reason they don't know is because no one's telling them. Uh, instead, we're misleading people and saying that their water is safe when it's not. Do you think this is more of an issue for people who are low income? Or is this all over? doesn't matter what income you are. It could affect you anywhere. This is an issue of infrastructure inequality that really does tend to hit hardest in our 
poorest minority neighborhoods and also in many of our poorest rural cities or towns. And what you're talking about is a confluence of having bad old pipes bringing water to your house, plus other factors that the folks living in those homes don't uh, use filters, for example, to protect themselves from the lead, or in the case of um, poor minority moms, they have a lower uh, frequency of breastfeeding, which really is remarkably protective of the infant, and they're more prone to make up infant formula from bottled lead-contaminated water. Mm. And this is off the charts in terms of the risk, in terms of where the risk from lead and water is. So for socioeconomic reasons and circumstance, uh, this infrastructure inequality, it does tend to hit our poorest and most vulnerable, as is the case in Flint, Michigan. Um, you talked about lead filters. Do you feel like we have the technology to um, address this sort of decaying uh, water infrastructure that we, we've got out there, which, I mean, you know, I, I, the American Society of Civil Engineers says, you know, our water supply gets about a D and a report card, which is terrible. Um, do we have the technology that we need to fix that problem? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the lead issue is very simple to fix. It's making sure that in homes that have lead pipe, if we could figure out where they are and tell people, you install one of these $30 filters that you can buy at Lowe's or Home Depot that's designed to remove lead. The field data shows that they're very, very effective. And you, you just need to install a $30 filter from Lowe's. That, that would have fixed things. In, would that have fixed things in Flint? That would have eliminated the lead problem in Flint. Yeah, you just use the filter to clean the water that's used for cooking or drinking. Um, you can use water with elevated lead in it to bathe, shower, wash dishes, wash clothes. That's not really a significant health risk. So that's what's so frustrating about this is that we have inexpensive, effective cures. And the danger is not so much having high lead in the water. It's having high lead in the water and not telling people about it so they can take steps to protect themselves. That's the essence of the federal lead and copper rule law that... Uh, the EPA and the water companies are supposed to test lead, and if it's high, uh, they tell people we can protect ourselves, and we thank them for that, and that's why we pay them to do their job. It's not like by hiding these problems they get any extra money or anything. Right. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Mark Edwards, a professor at Virginia Tech and one of the scientists who uncovered systemic lead poisoning in Flint, Michigan. Do you think... We need more people inside government, outside government, in labs, working on like, smarter, cheaper, easier ways to address uh, lead in infrastructure or, or you know, ways to create better infrastructure. Or is this simply nothing more than an issue of political will? Well, I think it's both. There, there's innovation that needs to occur that makes, for instance, the finding and replacement of these lead pipes more cost-effective. We also have a other emerging problems. Lead, perhaps, is not even the greatest problem we're facing with our infrastructure. It's leaks. It's water affordability. It's microorganisms that grow in our house, water systems that can kill us. And this happened in Flint. Twelve people died as the result of a Legionnaire's disease outbreak that is very likely caused by bad infrastructure 
the lack of corrosion control and these these bacteria that grow in, in people's water systems. And that's an emerging problem that we have to study and learn more about. There's currently no laws that protect people uh, from from these emerging dangers, such as Legionella and other bacteria. So we need more research, but a lot of this is simply getting funding to cities who can at least afford to pay for it. Realize when the infrastructure is graded a D minus, that means that hundreds and hundreds of cities actually have an F, and many cities that are rich and can afford it have an A. Right, right, right. The average doesn't tell you the whole story. No. the What we're talking about is an unprecedented infrastructure inequality where poor cities or post-industrial cities or rural America simply does not have money to do anything but fix pipes on failure at the least cost-effective way to get ahead of these right. problems. And, you know, other cities that have funding, they can replace lead pipes, they can upgrade their infrastructure, they can raise rates. Most people don't realize Flint was paying amongst the highest water rates in the world for water Hmm. that we now know was not suitable for anything but flushing toilets. Uh, And so it's not an issue of what people are paying. It's the fact that there's not enough people left in those cities to pay for it. And they're not able to proactively replace their pipes so that they can cost effectively deal with this problem. It's kind of an infrastructure death spiral, if you will. So given all this, should people trust their drinking water? And do you trust your drinking water? One of the tragedies in the aftermath of Flint is that for most systems around the country, where they're actually doing their job and they are trustworthy, that no one trusts their water anymore. And part of that's because we reached a tipping point, if you will, where we found enough people who are cheating or not following the federal law that it's impossible to tell which systems are trustworthy and which systems are not. So it's going to take years and years before trust in drinking water is exposed. And by the way, the the levels of trust in, in water have never been lower And in fact, bottled water sales exceeded soda sales in this country last year in large part because of the fallout from Flint, Michigan. You you said that a filter, for example, if I went to Home Depot and picked up a filter to get lead out of my water, it wouldn't be very expensive. How massive is that undertaking? If, If there is that bipartisan agreement, how massive are we talking about to make sure that people have clean and safe drinking water in this country? Well, to make clean and safe drinking water uh, through use of filters, um, it's relatively inexpensive. To replace the lead pipes, you're probably talking hundreds of billions of dollars. And more importantly, to upgrade those water mains, which are really the source of a lot of the problem in Flint, and make water affordable, you're you're probably talking closer to a trillion dollars. And is that what we should do? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, especially in in these cities that can least afford to do it, uh, rural American cities, post-industrial cities that, that haven't been able to upgrade their infrastructure for, in many cases, 20, 30 years. So finally, give me a sense of um, what your ongoing relationship is like with Flint and uh, and what things are like there now that in terms of what you've seen. 
Well, the situation is that the water is much improved, but the residents, and understandably so, some of them will never trust drinking water again. Uh, Leanne Walters is, is moved from Flint. She actually lives in Virginia now, and she's promised me she will never drink tap water again. And wow. many residents are afraid of taking baths or showers, which has horrific consequences in terms of other diseases, such as Shigella, which is spread by uh, lack of hand washing and hand-to-hand contact. And there was an outbreak in Flint and Genesee County of that uh, just this year. Uh, so, but we're kind of at, at the end of what we can do to make the water safe to drink. Uh, the, the water quality is now is probably as good as or better than most other U.S. cities. Doesn't mean people are going to trust it to drink it or shower in it. Hmm. But, you know, the next phase and the phase that will determine the fate of Flint's future is fixing the infrastructure and making water affordable to the point that people are actually paying less for their water bill than they are for their mortgage, which unfortunately uh, is not always the case in Flint right Mm -hmm. now. And if water rates double, most people are going to be paying more for their water than than for their mortgage. And under those circumstances, who's going to move into the city? And that's really what we need is to make it a hospitable, civilized place where there's clean and affordable water. Uh, That's the only way to give Flint a bright future. Mark Edwards leads the Flint Water Study. He's a professor of civil engineering at Virginia Tech. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. On our website, we've got more about lead in water, including a new site that's working on mapping lead levels around the country using your zip code. That's at innovationhub.org. And a follow-up to the point that Edwards made about the Environmental Protection Agency and their role in testing lead in water. President Trump's proposed budget includes cutting about a quarter of the EPA's funding. 3,000 EPA employees could be laid off, though it's unclear how Congress is going to respond to that proposal. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help this week from Matt Toda. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub is sponsored by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. And by the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. R.I. Public Radio International.